You are listening to The Players Lounge with your host, Alex Ramirez, on the Pro 10 Radio Network, a production of Pro 10 Global Sports. Enjoy the show. Good evening and welcome to the Players' Lounge presented by Pro 10 Global Sports and Pro 10 International. Today is Thursday, May 22nd. I am your host, Alex Ramirez. With me today is ATP WTA journalist and writer for his own blog, TennisAcumen.com, Pete Zebron. Pete, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well, Alex. Thanks again for having me on the show. Looking forward to tonight's, tonight's show and guest. Absolutely. Me too. want to remind everybody that you can call the show at area code 347-637-1197. You can also reach us on Twitter at Pro10 Radio, and you can check Pro10Radio.com for all the podcasts and future show information. I want to take this time to thank all of our new partners, uh, the Ball Magnet, SportsMouse at SportsMouse.net, the Tennis Congress, and Cruise Control Pier. We have also started a campaign to support the orphans at the Alora Academy in Africa that serve the less fortunate children across the slums of Kisumu City and Western Kenya. Please check the ProTenRadio.com website and click on the Donate button on the front page of the website. It's a great cause to get involved with. Uh, if you want to know more about the many products and services that we feature here on the show, you may want to tune in on Friday, May 30th at 9 a.m. Pacific. We're going to have representatives from the many different companies telling us about their products and services Our goal here at Pro10 Radio Network is to support the tennis industry and the many people out there working to make your tennis experience a much better one. Pro10Radio.com is is a not-for-profit organization. We don't charge anything for the companies uh, that we support to advertise on here. We only ask for a small donation of any kind. Uh, All donations help to pay for the expenses, and the majority of the donations go to support the Pro10 Foundation and Scholarship Fund. Pretty soon we're going to be doing a show about the foundation, our mission, and how Protein International and Protein Global Sports support the mission. If you have a product or service that you would like to feature on the show, send us an email to radio at protenradio.com. And Pete, I'm excited tonight. We have a, a legend on the show. I'm so excited to have him on here. Our, our special guest this evening was coached by Pancho Gonzalez uh, as a young player. He attended the University of Southern California and won the NCAA championships. Uh, he and his partner, Bill Bond, captured the NCAA doubles title in 1964. He was the highest-ranked American player at the end of three uh, consecutive years in the 1960s. And with, uh, with his career high in singles, number three in 1963, he reached the finals at Wimbledon in 1966. He was a member of the Handsome Eight, the initial eight players signed by the Professional World Championship Tennis Tour. He won 27 doubles titles. And 27 doubles and singles titles, including five Grand Slam doubles crowns. Dennis Ralston, welcome to the show. Good to have you. Hi, Alex. Nice to be on the show. Yes, thank you so much for joining us this evening. And Dennis, we're going to start off. We always like to look back, and and the first question right off the bat is, can you tell us a little bit about uh, when you were young, how you started tennis, and and what made you love it? Well, Alex, I was. Uh... I grew up in California, in Bakersfield, California, which is in central California, and my mom and dad both played, and I have an older sister that played, so it was kind of like a a family thing. We started at a public park, Jastro Park, that's still there in Bakersfield to this day, and uh, so my mom and dad were very good players. Uh, My dad beat Bobby Riggs in in high school tennis in uh, L.A. He went to Glendale Hoover and Riggs went to I'm not Burbank High or some other one. So my dad was a really good player and my mom was the number one player in Nevada in the forties. Of course there weren't too many players in Nevada in those days, but uh she was a she was a very, very good player and so it was just kind of a family thing that I got involved and as a as a youngster I started playing when I was five and uh just kept going and uh had a lot of help from the community in Bakersfield and the and the racket club which developed after enough players decided they didn't want to play at the public parks and 
so it was just sort of like uh, I, I was kind of started as a in the crib watching them play, and then I wanted to get out there, and and then people helped me. My parents basically taught me, and I started uh, to do okay in the juniors in Southern California, and then uh, they saw that I might have some potential, and and they they invited me down to L.A. and I met Pancho Gonzalez and Pancho Segura, and and uh, got to play at the L.A. Tennis Club and. And with all the the great players, and and so it's sort of like, uh, you know, it was just I just evolved, and and I had a lot of help from a lot of people. That's uh, that's. Thank you very much for sharing that uh, that info, Dennis. And uh, with respect to that, if you could uh, elaborate a little bit uh, on a couple of things, what the junior titles or tournaments stick out in your mind as special memories in your junior career, and maybe early on, uh, you know, uh, being able to meet. Uh, and speak with Pancho Gonzalez and, and how that uh, evolved with respect to having him coach you as well. Well, I was the ball boy for, for Pancho when the, the Pro Tour in the 50s came. They used to play 100 matches throughout the U.S., and, and they came to Bakersfield, and I saw Pancho play Lou Hode, and I was a ball boy. And I'll tell you what, that that was the most unbelievable tennis I'd ever seen. And, and uh so, you know, he was sort of my idol. I mean, he was the number one player in the world. And, and uh, well, I thought, what an opportunity to meet him, let alone have him take an interest in me. And and in the juniors, you know, I, I, I played Kalamazoo in the 15 and unders in those days, and it was a, a clay court then. It wasn't hard, so we'd never played on clay. And, and so I had some adjusting to do. I had to learn to play on clay, and, the first year I went back to the, the the Midwest, I played in Champaign and Louisville and tournaments prior to the zoo. And then uh, I got to Kalamazoo, and I got to the finals of the 15 and unders and lost to a friend of mine, Bill Bond from La Jolla, who beat me in the finals, but we won the doubles. And the next year I went back to play in the 18 and unders, and, and uh, I had figured out how I should play on and somehow I won the 18 and unders at when I was 16, and so that pretty much uh, gave me a pretty big start in the in the game, and I got into a lot of tournaments that uh, you know were for adults and the men's and stuff, and and pretty much uh, launched me on my my career. The, the real launch was when I went to Wimbledon when I was 17 and uh, played with Rafael Osuna uh, from Mexico, and we were unseated and unheard of, and the only team from locker room B ever to win at Wimbledon. And uh, somehow we managed to win, uh, you know, and, and no one gave us much chance, but we, we beat a lot of good teams. And, and that really put me onto the, the big leagues as far as, far as uh, uh, tennis world. I mean, I, people thought that I might be pretty good. That's, that's fantastic. Well, 17-year-old and um, – Wimbledon doubles championship for you. That that's fantastic. And you know, back in the day, uh, Dennis, it was a little bit different with respect to to people um, going and playing college tennis and then deciding whether or not to to turn pro. Can you elaborate a bit on your decision to to go to college uh, to turn pro and and your whole thought process with respect to that? Certainly. Well, when I was growing up, there were there weren't too many professionals. The game was basically amateur and. And there was a lot of money under the table for the top amateurs, but um, you know, I always wanted to be, you know, a, to play against the best players. But I knew that I had to, you know, I had to develop, and so I really think I developed it when I went to USC and played there for George Tolley, and and uh, we couldn't play as a freshman, so you know, I I just played a lot of tournaments. But my sophomore, junior, and senior year, I mean, we had. Some, some, we had maybe one of the best teams ever in college uh, my junior year with Rafael Osuna and, and Bill Bond and Ramsey Earnhardt and Tom Edelson. And, and uh, you know, it was it was a great training ground. We practiced at the L.A. Tennis Club. And, and uh, so in those days, you know, there were very few people turning pro. I mean, it, you had to be a Wimbledon winner or a finalist or, or somebody that uh, the tour was interested in, like Jack Kramer, and he was running the tour. And and so, you know, I really didn't think that I'd ever play, you know, as the top pro, and, and but that was what I wanted to do. And 
1966, uh, when I got to the finals of Wimbledon, I just figured that, you know, that, that I was getting an offer from the Pro Tour, and, and I just wanted to play against the best. So uh, I signed a contract and ended up playing uh, my first pro matches with Poncho as my partner. It was a USA versus Australia. We played, uh, Gonzalez and I played Labor, Rosewall, and Spali, a tour through New Zealand and, and Australia. So, you know, to me, that was, I mean, that was the catch me out, being with Poncho playing against the best Australians. And, uh, of course, I never thought that would ever happen as a, as a youngster and, and even in college. But I just, you know, I sort of kind of lucked into it, I guess. Yes. Uh, thank you for that. Dennis, I heard a story, I think you did an interview before, you had talked about your choice, uh, excuse me, USC, but your, your first wanted to go to UCLA. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I almost went to UCLA. Uh, growing up in Bakersfield, we had a, a, a former Bruin that played at the racket club. And, and uh, to be absolutely honest, I went down to watch a practice at UCLA, and and I just couldn't deal with the way, and, and he was a great coach, but I knew it wouldn't work for me, J.D. Morgan. And, and he had Alan Fox and Larry Negler and, and, you know, J.D. had a lot of great teams, but I didn't like anybody yelling at me. And so that basically um, killed me from going to UCLA. I, I ended up going to USC because George Tolley was a low-key and, and not high pressure. And, and plus, Osuna and I had won Wimbledon when I was still in high school. And so it was sort of like a, an automatic that uh, – you know, I, I I do better when somebody doesn't yell at me. And some people, you know, function better like, a, you know, a Bobby Knight coach, but that kind of coach wouldn't have worked for me. Yeah, Dennis, we're going to talk quite a bit about, um, you know, your doubles partnerships and your t- your titles as well as some of your opponents. But, uh, you know, getting all the way to the final in, in 1966 at Wimbledon, uh, can you take us through your recollections of, of your run to the final that year? Yeah, I, I I remember that one pretty well. I think you uh, tend to remember the ones that you get close to. And um, I think probably at that stage, um, you know, I'd beaten Cliff Drysdale in the semis, 10-8 in the fifth, and uh, I, pl- I was playing well, and I had a day off. And uh, so I played a, a player that I'd beaten 4-4 four and four two weeks earlier, Manolo Santana of Spain. He's a very fine player. I thought I was going to win, but I went out there kind of thinking like, you know, I'm in the finals and that's pretty cool. But I didn't have anybody. I didn't have a coach and I didn't have anybody kicking me in the rear and saying, okay, you're partway there, you know, but you got to finish the deal. And uh, so I played kind of a, a blasé match in my mind. And not to take anything away from Santana, he played well, but I'd love to go back and replay that one. Um, but you can't do that, so I learned from it. And I learned it helped me become a better coach. Um, when I was coaching Roscoe Tanner, when he played Borg in, in Wimbledon final, in the Wimbledon final that was the first uh, NBC breakfast at Wimbledon, I told Roscoe, I said, you're not going to do what I did. You're not going to go out there and just kind of, waltz through it you're going to go out and win this thing and tanner played a great match and he was so close to winning that and so i think that helped in that sense but uh, you know getting to the final uh of wimbledon is is okay but you always think about what if and uh yeah it bothers me that i didn't i didn't complete the deal and i actually believe it or not, took the, the runner-up trophy and threw it in the Thames. And uh, so I wasn't real pleased with the fact that I that I won, that I lost in the finals. Well, you know, losing in the finals is a lot more than any of us have done. We'd like to even just get to Wimbledon, but it definitely was a good accomplishment. And I like the fact that you said that you learned from that, from that loss and a lot of these players these days. Uh, that's important for them to know that the losses, you learn a lot more from those losses than the wins. Um, so thank you for sharing that, Dennis. Uh, you know, you talked about partnering up with Rafael Osuna. You won 
at 17 years old, the Devils title in 1960. Then, along with a new partner, Chuck McKinley, he faced Osuna in three consecutive U.S. Championship Devils finals, winning two of them. Uh, in fact, you and Chuck McKinley won three of the four U.S. Championship and Devils. What clicked with you and Chuck in New York? Well, we played the national doubles in those years in Boston, and uh, Chuck was uh, the Wimbledon champion in 1963, winning Wimbledon without losing a set. And he was a heck of a player. And, um, you know, he was the number one American at the time, and I was maybe two or three or whatever. And, and we just kind of meshed. We were a good team, and and we played Davis Cup and, and, you know, all through the campaign in 63 where we, we ended up winning against Australia. And, and he was sort of like, uh, you know, he, he was an amazing athlete. He could he could do everything. He was only 5'8", and should have been a fullback in, in football, but he was he, he, he loved tennis. And uh, we just meshed. I mean, we, he knew where I was going to go. I knew where he was going to go. Well, Stuart and I were like that, too. And, uh, but... You know, he. Uh, it was interesting playing Rafael when he played for Mexico, and there was a lot of pressure. And against, you know, playing against him, my my roommate at USC, and and uh, I'm sure he felt the same thing. But we had some tremendous battles and great matches, and unfortunately, we won most of them. Yeah, Dennis, uh, in, you, you mentioned 63, and uh, you appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated in 1963, and I uh, was wondering if a big deal was made about that back then. Well, I think, again, when you're young, you kind of, you know, you don't really know, you know, what's going on. Like, I mean, Sports Illustrated was a, 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 the only sports magazine, I guess, at the time, and and the fact that I was on the cover I thought that was cool. I didn't realize that, you know, it's not easy to get on this cover of Sports Illustrated. And and uh, so they did a great article. They came out and visited my folks. And, and you know, it was basically after we lost to Mexico in 62 uh, down there. I, I played pretty poorly and actually served 22 double faults in five sets and and uh, lost to Osuna and Palafox and, and so I got blamed for the loss, but then we beat them in LA the next year and and in '63. And so they did a great story on and and uh, you know I was really kind of too young to recognize how cool that was, and and I, I appreciate it now. I can tell you, <laughs> but uh, it was it was pretty neat. <laughs> yes, I bet. Dennis, uh, we're coming up on a break, so just one quick question before we go on break. Uh, going back to doubles, you were able to partner with Arthur Ashe and Billie Jean King. Can you talk a little bit about those experiences? Yeah, I, I was lucky enough to play with Billie Jean at Wimbledon, and, and uh, we came close to winning the mix, and, and I played with Arthur a lot. When I was, when, when I was coach of the Davis Cup team, I couldn't play. For the for the team, but I, Arthur and I played Stan Smith and Bob Lutz uh, all the time, and we just tuned them every time we played them. So Arthur and I were really really good team, and uh, we should have won Wimbledon in 1971 or two, I think 71. That is great. I bet great great memories for you. Uh, we are coming up on a break, so everybody hold on. We'll be back with Dennis Ralston right after the youth messages. Don't go anywhere. Hi, this is Jeff Salzenstein, former top 100 ATP singles and doubles player, two-time Stanford All-American, and high-performance coach. You're about to discover how to dramatically improve your tennis fitness level so that you can play your best tennis ever. You see, this program is a 12-week guide where you'll be taken by the hand and shown exactly how to get super strong and mobile so that you can easily feel more stable, prevent injuries, move more efficiently on the court, have more endurance, and add more effortless power to your game. I want you to know that just like all of my other courses, you'll get a full 100% money-back guarantee on strength and mobility for tennis if you're not completely satisfied. I'll give you a full year to keep the program, and if you're not completely satisfied, I'm going to refund every penny. Go to jeffsaldensteintennis.com to take your tennis to the next level. 
Their advertisements make it seem like they love animals, but in reality, they tortured animals for decades. They tested cigarettes on monkeys, rabbits, and dogs. In one study, they strapped dogs down and cut their throats open to permanently install a tube that forced the dogs to smoke cigarettes. This filled their bodies with tar that caused some of the dogs to develop cancer, bronchitis, and pulmonary emphysema. But it gets worse. In the late 60s, they were running smoking experiments with rabbits and mice where the animals were developing emphysema. Hundreds of rabbits and mice died. Any normal company would have had a massive recall. But what did they do? They fired the scientists, buried the findings, and shut down the study. Then they continued to deny smoking caused any health problems for decades. So you want to know why I'm smoke-free? Because I'm not okay with hurting dogs to test tobacco products. That's why. Learn more at whydoyouthink.com. That's the letter Y, do you think, dot com. Northern Tool and Equipment. My girlfriend has given me a pet name. I'm afraid to ask. Snuggle Muffin. No, it isn't. And she uses it in public. Okay, so give your girlfriend a pet name she'll hate, like uh, Thunder Chunky. I couldn't do that. I see. Too harsh for Snuggle Muffin. Okay. Drown her out with a 200-mile-per-hour cordless leaf blower. Got it. Here she comes. Hey, Snuggle Muffin. What are you doing, Snuggle... 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 I am so out of here. Wait. Come back, Thunder Chunky. There's no problem a little horsepower can't solve. Northern Tool and Equipment. Hi, this is Rick Macy, and you're listening to the Pro 10 Radio Network. Catch me live on the Coach's Corner, Friday, May 23rd, at 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Welcome back to the Fighters Lounge on the Pro 10 Radio Network. We are talking with legendary Dennis Rawson. Dennis, uh, can you see him? Are you there? Yep, I'm here. Oh, fantastic. I couldn't hear anything. I got stripped there for a bit. Uh, Dennis, you also faced uh, Nastasi and Tyriak in winning uh, Roland Garros in 66. What do you recall about that run and your opponents in that final? Well, in 66, I was playing with Clark Gravener, who was an excellent doubles player and, and a very fine singles player, quite a bit younger than I am, but uh, was. And, uh, you know, 66 was the year I got to the finals of Wimbledon, so I'd been over in Europe uh, playing on the clay and preparation, trying to get ready to play well at Wimbledon. And I actually played pretty well at the French and and uh, in singles, but I had – some blisters in the quarters and a lost. And but Clark and I were, you know, Nastasi was sort of on the on the rise. He was sort of a guy that everybody thought was really talented and and uh, you know had all the shots. And nobody really knew that that he was the kind of guy he turned out to be, kind of like a, a crazy guy at times. I mean, he was so talented, but. Kiriak, on the other hand, was a guy that played uh, hockey for the Romanian World Cup team, and and used to get a hundred dollars for choosing uh, for for um, taking a, a wine glass and chewing it up. It had to be a fine wine glass, though. But uh, he'd chew it up and for a hundred bucks, and uh, he looked like uh, you know uh, Dracula. He was from Transylvania, and and a very accomplished player, but but uh, not a guy that I really liked very much. And so, you know, I remember that uh, Clark and I were playing well, and we just, you know, said we're not going to deal with who we're playing. We're going to play the ball, and, and we just did. And we just cleaned their clocks. And uh, probably one of the, the most satisfying victories I've ever had, uh, you know, because I'm not a big fan of Tyriac. That's that's it. Wow, chewing glass and and playing ice hockey and and also tennis. That's uh, that's some talent there. And uh, obviously he's doing extremely well financially and uh, running the uh, the Madrid Masters as well. So um, um, Dennis was wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on on your time coaching Chris Everett. 
Sure. I coached Chrissy from uh, I coached Chrissy from eighty one to eighty seven, and got into working with Chrissy because I was coaching her husband John Lloyd. And uh, so one day John said Chrissy wanted to know if she could come out and work out with us, and I said sure, that would be great. And uh, at the time I was coaching Ryan Gottfried and Harold Solomon and, and Roscoe Tanner, and and uh, so Chrissy came out. And she worked harder than all the guys put together. And uh, so it just kind of worked out that, you know, she said, would you like to travel some with me and help me? And I said, I would. And uh, so we had seven years of of traveling and, and, uh, you know, working out. And and it was an interesting period. Uh, You know, her personal life was tough because she ended up splitting with John and, and uh, so that was part of it. I mean, you know, everybody thinks that the tennis players just go out and play tennis, but they, they live lives just like we all do. And so it was a tough time for Chrissy. And uh, I guess probably the, the, the most, uh, I guess the most important thing that I realized with Chrissy was that she was a, she's a really good athlete. A lot of people didn't give her credit for that. She's a heck of an athlete. And, she probably worked harder than anybody and had a better uh, professional uh, attitude about the game than all the men that I've coached. And I've coached a lot of different players, but uh, it was fun. I mean, she she worked hard. I'd say, okay, we're done, and she said, no, I want to do more. Um, you know, it was it was great to have somebody that's saying, I want to do more, because most of the time. The, the player says that's you say that's enough, and they say oh thank you, and that's good. But uh, Christy was uh, uh, a much better athlete than most people give her credit for, and she adjusted to Martina's game. She she learned some new shots. She got in better shape. Uh, she had lost to Martina thirteen times in a row at one stage. I was really considering bagging it and giving it up, but. Uh, she kept with it. She learned how to hit a topspin lob. She learned to come in. She learned to volley. And after that 13-0 run, she was basically 50% with Martina from that time on. So, you know, I have nothing but good things to say about Chrissy. Thank you so much for that insight. That's uh, that's really great to know, uh, Dennis. And, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, a couple of times Roscoe Tanner, and I – you know, I talk with some of my friends who are older who have played college tennis uh, who are from Southern California, and my question to them would be, okay, if we take away the technology today, you know, who back in the day had the really big serve? And everybody's answer was Roscoe Tanner. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the time that you spent coaching Roscoe. Yes. Uh, well, Roscoe had kind of a unique motion, as, you know, anybody that knows tennis. He hit the ball on the way up, and uh, – he had a PDP, which is a racket, was one of the first metal rackets, and and Roscoe could hit that serve, you know, 125, at, at, you know, and and you know he could place it really well. It was hard to read. I mean, Macanos serve very hard to read as well, but not nearly as powerful as as Tanner's. And you know, I hate to think of how fast Tanner would serve it now with with equipment now, but I got to say the best serve I've ever seen. In, in bar none, is Big Poncho, and mm. you know you, you you know you can imagine Poncho serving with one of these rackets today. Those days he hit at 120 with a wooden racket, and he could hit anything he wanted, anywhere he wanted. So I get asked that question: Well, you know, who's the best, and all this? Who's the greatest player you've ever seen? And you know, there are a lot of great players, and and of course the eras changed, the equipment changed, the you know the 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 coaches changed. They, they got nutritionists. They got masseurs traveling with them. I mean, Poncho played night after night, didn't have anybody helping him. And to me, the best player that I've ever seen play, if I had to have one guy play for my life, it would be Big Poncho. Nice. Thank, thanks yeah. for sharing that. <clears throat> hey, you know, Dennis, uh, uh, there's a question from uh, from a coaching perspective. Uh, I coach from the circuit, uh, up-and-coming players from the ITF circuit, and uh, there's challenges as far as the players. Can you talk about some of the challenges you had from a coach's perspective as far as if you had to teach them a new technique or maybe a new strategy or some of the challenges you had from coaching some of the players, the many players that you've 
that you've coached? Well, I think I was lucky in that, that I had pretty established players. And, and, you know, I think I learned a lot from my own experiences and, and where I, you know, failed or I didn't, you know, do the things I should have done. I, I, I kind of could, could push through and, and tell these guys, look, you know, you're close, but you want to make the next next step. This is what you got to do. And I and I think one of the problems with everybody's talking about what's the matter with American tennis and and our players. I think one of the problems is that our guys seem to be content or happy with getting to the quarters or the you know the sixteens or whatever. I want a guy that wants to be the number one player in the world. That's who I want to coach. I want a guy that that says I'm going to be the best and. Obviously, there's only one spot for that, you know, that position. But I want a guy that wants it, or a, or a gal that says, "I want to be number one. I want to win Wimbledon. I don't want somebody that says, I want to get to the quarters and 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 make a lot of money." And you know, I, and, and that's not wrong saying that that people might think that. But for me, as a coach, I was lucky enough to have guys that were right there at the top. I had Chris Everett. I had. Gabriella Sabatini and you know I had uh, Noah and you know bringing him back and and those guys you know they wanted to win and they wanted to be the number one player and so you know just a my thought is when I read all this stuff and I hear it about our American players I want those guys I want John Isner saying hey I don't want to be a semifinalist I don't want to be I want to win these these majors I, I want to do the things I need to do and that's too bad that you know, maybe he does say that, but I don't see it. I don't see any of those guys playing Madrid. I don't see any of them playing, uh, you know, the Clays, and 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 maybe they play they played Rome, but that's it. And uh, you know, if I were running American tennis, I'd have every good American playing every major clay court tournament over there and qualifying and trying to qualify and training. And then they're going to learn to play on all the surfaces. And, you know, Wimbledon is a different story now because the grass is sort of like cement now. But um, just my my personal opinion of, of don't settle for just being a, a good player. Go for the go for the top. You know, the, it's, it's ironic. It's funny that you say that. Uh, we get a lot of players here at the academy, and, and they all want to go pro. And I always ask them, what's your goal? And one of the first things they say is, well, I want to be the best I can be. And I say, no, really, well, what's, what's the ultimate goal? And they say, well, if I could be top 100. And they never really come out and say, I don't know if they're afraid of saying I'll be number one in the world, or like you said, they're just happy with just being top 50 or top 20. But you're right, having that player come to you and say, I want to be number one. And to this day, the only player I've met so far that I've, co- that I've worked with kind of personally uh, is Monica Pulitz that said, first thing I asked her, she said, I said, what do you want to do? So I want to be number one in the world. And that's just my ultimate goal. She wasn't afraid of it. And and with the right coaching, I think she'll get there. So thank Good. you so much that's for that. You know, for that? Good for you. I think that's good. You want that kind of player. You want that kind of player. Yeah, she's out there now. She's battling, and I think she, with that kind of attitude, she'll make it. And, you know, it's funny that you brought up Isner. Uh, Isner comes up a lot in our talks. We do a show called Passing Shots, and uh, it comes up a lot that he's just very nonchalant about his game. He's eight in the world. Uh, is uh, I think he's pretty content with 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 eight. Uh, Pete, you had a couple of thoughts on Isner in the past uh, with your experiences in the presser in the press room with him. I did, uh, Dennis. Uh, I cover Cincinnati every year, and uh, first off, he he said uh, you know he wouldn't be where he is uh, in. in if he didn't go to the University of Georgia for four years. But he also, you know, uh, interestingly enough, um, he, he got to the final of Cincy uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, both Rafael Nadal and Juan Martin Del Potro said, uh, you know, this guy's got uh, probably the best serve on tour. We don't want any part of this guy. We don't want to play this guy. We don't like seeing his name in the draw. And yet, you know, John Isner, uh, you know, I believe thinks that tennis is a hobby for him. He'd, he'd much rather watch NFL football or even wrestling and obviously uh, isn't the same person when he's outside the United States. It's it's amazing. So many people would give to, to have his talent, and yet, uh, yeah, he doesn't play Monte Carlo every year and uh, 
just the clay court season is is throwaway for him, unfortunately. Well, I mean, I, I you know, I think Isner did develop at the University of Georgia. I think that college tennis is a great uh, training ground for our American players, and I think a lot of guys turn pro way too soon. I think Jack Sock's a good example. I think if he'd have proved that he could be the number one collegiate player. I mean, he's a good player, no doubt about it, but, but he might have been a lot better a lot sooner, and maybe he'll develop. I don't know. But uh, Isner, to me, with that serve, should be a threat to win Wimbledon every year, but he can't return mm-hmm. serve. So, you know, and he can't – he doesn't attack. He doesn't – he tries to get winners on every return. I could help that guy win Wimbledon, but, uh, you know, uh, you know that's, that's not going to happen because uh, – I'm ancient history, I guess, but I played over a hundred matches at Wimbledon, so I know kind of how to play on grass and just alone at Wimbledon. But you know, I'm not saying that he's wrong for being content with being eight in the world. That's a heck of an accomplishment, no doubt about it. But it I want, I, if I'm coaching somebody, I want them, and I guess this kind of goes back to the way the way I thought. I thought I'd win every tournament I played. I didn't, obviously, but. I thought I could win every tournament that I played, every match. I went into every match thinking I could win. And, yes, I, I certainly didn't win every match. But, um, you know, you got to think you're going to win. you got to think you can win if you're going to be good. And uh, so I think, you know, I never was satisfied with just getting to the quarters. I mean, I beat Labor at, at uh, Forest Hills in 69, I beat him 10-8 in the fifth in front of 10,000 people. And, you know, I, I drove the subway back to the hotel, and everybody was congratulating me, and I was thinking, how cool. And, and then, like an idiot, I read the papers the next day. And then the next day, I had to play the next day, and I went out and lost to Cliff Ritchie on grass. And Cliff Ritchie was a good player on clay, but not a guy I should lose to on grass. And... You know, and, and, and so, you know, I I kind of, that's another thing I learned. You know, you win a big match and you think, cool, but then you got to go out and do it again the next day. And that's the thing that Isner, I think, needs to follow and, 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 and really want to win a major. And maybe he will never win a major, but if he doesn't believe he can do it, he's certainly not going to, it's not going to happen. Sure. Right. Uh, interesting. I, I'd love to see what you'd be able to do uh, with John Isner, especially at, uh, at Wimbledon, Dennis. But uh, you did mention a couple of other big names that you've worked with in the past. I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the time you spent uh, with Gabriela Sabatini as well as, uh, as, well as Noah. Well, I, I worked with Sabatini kind of when she was really struggling. And, and uh, you know, she'd had a number of different coaches and, and – uh, we worked, started at uh, Key Biscayne, and, you know, I didn't know Gabby. I, I, I kind of obviously watched her, and and so we started at Key Biscayne, and she was out of shape, and we worked hard. We got her in shape. She she played the, the, the circuit, and we went to Rome, and she got to the finals at Rome and, and lost a match to San, Sanchez Ricario that, that was a good match in the finals. And then she got to the finals with German, and then lost to Steffi Graf 6-4 in the third in another good match. Then we went to Paris, and I really thought she was playing well, and she was. And she played Mary Jo Fernandez in the quarters, and she d- demolished everybody to get to the quarters, and she was up a set and 4-1 against Fernandez. And then Mary Jo just started swinging from the heels. And I was sitting with Harold Solomon, who was a guy I'd coached and, and was one of my – guys on my Davis Cup teams and Harold was coaching Mary Jo and I said Mary Jo hit two balls and a 4-1 on the line just swinging from the heels I said Harold this match isn't over yet and sure enough it wasn't and 10-8 in the third after maybe one of the best matches Gabby lost to, to Mary Jo Fernandez she had five match points and lost and basically that was the end of her career she just never rebounded and uh, she just kind of tanked after that at Wimbledon and, and uh, basically said that's enough. And uh, you often think about one point, what a difference a match point can make in a, in a career. But, 
you know, I enjoyed working with Gabby, and and uh, Noah was even more fun because he was, you know, he was kind of crazy, and uh, they 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 uh, the press in France kind of put it down as the odd couple, Noah and Ralston. Noah was kind of the flamboyant, uh, you know, singer musician, love life, and I was the more conservative, uh, laid back, old guard Californian and. But we had a good time, and we we did well until he got to the semis in the French and in, in the Australian, and uh, he had beaten Lindell two weeks earlier at Sydney, and I thought he had a great chance to win this thing. And he goes out against uh, Lindell in the semis of the Australian, gets a bad call at the third point, and went berserk. And and I'd never seen him go berserk. And Later, I find out that he'd had an issue with his girlfriend and and all those other things that most people don't know enter into a, a, a player's life and uh, basically just said, that's it. And uh, from that point on, he was basically gave up worrying about playing. And uh, so I bought, bought him from like 88 in the, in the world to like 17. And I had a big bonus if he gets if he wins this match in the, in the Australian. I remember I wrote my own contract, and I had a hundred thousand dollar <laughs> bonus if he wins this match. So I remember it real well. And uh, when he went berserk on the third point, I thought, uh oh. And sure enough, he just basically rolled over and Lendl won in three straight. So, you know, interesting, interesting, uh, interesting things as a as a coach. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. and we, thank you kindly for, for all that uh, insight and analysis, Dennis. And we're going to uh, go to break now. When we come back from break, we're going to talk a little bit about some of your uh, your coaching in, in Davis Cup as, uh, as a coach as well as playing, and we'll be back with Dennis Ralston right after this. Hey, Thirst, can I try out a few Coke Summer Sound effects on you? Cool. You okay with this? And this? And what about this? Ha! Gotcha there, Thirst. That wasn't sound effects. That was a Coke. I'm no longer thirsty. You're so out of here. Coca-Cola. Open happiness. What is this bill for $562? Let me call these people. Thanks for calling Big Tobacco. How can I be of assistance? Hi, I was going through my mail and saw this bill saying I owe $562 for smoking-related expenses. That's correct, ma'am. Yeah, what's the deal with this bill? You see, smokers miss more work and retire earlier, which costs Nevadans $903 million in lost productivity per year. Also, smokers get sick with diseases like lung cancer and emphysema, costing another $565 million in medical expenses. So, when you add it up and divide by a total number of Nevadans, it comes out to $562 per Nevada household. Okay, but I don't smoke. Whether you smoke or not, every Nevadan pays the bill. You know what? I'm not paying this bill. Actually, you already did. And you'll be making the same payment again next year. Well, thank you for your call. Hello? Is smoking worth it? Learn more at SmokeFreeVegas.com. That's SmokeFreeVegas.com. Or for free help quitting smoking, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. That's 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Made possible by funding from the Department of Health and Human Services. Little Caesars, home of the $5 hot and ready pepperoni pizza, now has a deep, deep dish pizza with eight crispy caramelized corner slices and even more cheese and pepperoni. So head on down and grab a large for just eight bucks and tell them Alan Varner sent you. They won't know who that is, but as a voice actor, I'm always trying to get my name out there. Check me out at alandoesvoices.com. That's A-L-A-N doesvoices.com. But first, get the new deep, deep dish pizza. It's hot and ready every day from 4 to 8 p.m. for just 8 bucks, only at Little Caesars. Pizza, pizza. At participating locations plus tax. To celebrate the not normal Mini Cooper, we hired an expert to tell you about Mini telepathically. Greetings. Relax and listen to my mind. The Mini Cooper hardtop comes with 37 MPG and co-cart handling. Wait, that's not telepathy. Listen again. The bigger four-door Mini Countryman has seating for five. Okay, you're just whispering. You're still paying me for this. Come see the 37 MPG Mini Cooper hardtop and the bigger Mini Countryman today. Visit MiniUSA.com slash info for MPG details. Hi, this is John Embry, and you're listening to the Crow 10 Radio Network. Catch me live on Wednesday, May 28th at 1 o'clock Pacific.
And we're back to the final segment of the Players Lounge presented by Protein Global Sports. Uh, talking with Dennis Ralston. Dennis, sticking with the coaching, uh, uh, you coached the USA to five consecutive Davis Cup championships from 68 to 72. Uh, such a great feat. Congratulations on that achievement. Anything in particular that stands out from that time? Well, I was a coach from 68 69, 70, and 71, and, uh, you know, it was it was a great team that we had, Arthur Ashe and, and Stan Smith and Bob Lutz, and, and uh, then in 72, I was appointed to be the captain of the team, and, and that was probably the most kind of memorable uh, experience in my, in my tennis career is uh, the fact that we won the Davis Cup in 72 in, in Bucharest, in October, uh, actually November, I think, um, we're the only team to never play a match at home and win the Davis Cup. And um, the USTA, in their infinite wisdom, in 1972, um, we played uh, the Commonwealth Caribbean in, in Jamaica. We played uh, Mexico in Mexico City. We played Chile in Santiago. And we played Spain in Barcelona. And after the fourth match, we had earned home court advantage. But in 72, they changed the format of the Davis Cup. So prior to that, the challenging uh, team would play the, the, the current winner. And so we won 68, 69, 70, and 71. And so the format would have been that uh, we, we have home court because we were the champion nation. 72, they put everybody in the tournament. So they changed the format, but um, we still earned the right to play Romania in the U.S., but the U.S. TA, because my friend Mr. Kiriak complained to the U.S. TA and, and said that, well, we played the U.S. the last two years in Charlotte and Cleveland, and even though the format was different, the U.S. TA, I guess, felt, that they thought it would be cool for us to go to Romania. Well, in, in 72, uh, the Black September hit uh, the Munich Olympics, and and everybody knows what happened there. And we also had two Jewish boys on our team, Harold Solomon and Brian Gottfried. And, and so we had a threat from the Black September that they were going to hit the American team in Bucharest. And when I heard that we were going to Bucharest, at the U.S. Open, or actually Forest Hill, the U.S. Championships, I had a meeting with my team, and somebody said, well, you know you're going to Bucharest to play the finals. Our team said, are you kidding? We're not going to Bucharest. Australia, I talked to their captain, Neil Fraser, and he said, don't even bother to go. They lie, they cheat, they have linesmen. Uh, you know, you have no chance. Well, with that little uh, caveat, we ended up having a team meeting to sign that Either we boycotted and didn't go, or we went. So we decided to go. And probably it was the greatest win in Davis Cup history, not because I was involved, but because it happened in, in Bucharest. And they did have meetings with the linesmen before the matches, how they were going to cheat us. And, and Turiak orchestrated the crowd. And, and Stasi fortunately, played like uh, he played like he didn't know how to play, I guess. Smith beat the heck out of him in the first match. But it was an amazing, amazing match. We never stopped at a traffic light in 10 days. We had the top Secret Service guys of Ceausescu, Gardner's. Uh, we couldn't go out of our hotel. They built a special stadium, uh, had uh, security all over the place. Uh, so it was one of the most amazing wins in, in, in any tennis, any sports history, I think. And so I was, you know, I never thought we'd win uh, I actually thought we'd win when we won the first match, Smith beat Nastasi. And then Tyriac stole the match from Gorman. And then Tyriac and Nastasi had beaten uh, Van Dillon and Smith the year earlier. Tune Van Dillon made a fool of him. And Van Dillon had a nightmare. He told me about before the match. And he said, Coach, he said, I have this nightmare. I go up to Tyriac and we're arguing. And I take my racket, which is a Spalding Smasher, and I just go whoosh. And there goes his head rolling down the court. And I thought, chief, can I play this young guy in front of 10,000 screaming Romanians? 
And I seriously considered not playing him and putting Gorman with Smith, but uh, I, I decided to go with the established team, and, and Van Dillen played the match of his life, and they beat Tyriac and Nastasi in three straight. So I thought after 2-1 for us that we had a pretty good shot at winning. And then the match with uh, Smith and, and, and Tyriac started, and, and I remember sitting there at uh, two sets all, love 40 in the fifth, Smith serving, I figured we were done. And then Smith, I mean, did something that is beyond belief. He served with, just to tell you how the, the Romanians wanted to change balls, they wanted to change balls on 25 and 27. And the captains have a meeting before the, the match starts and talking about when they're going to change balls. And so I said, I want to change balls on three and five because we were playing on a very slow court that they were watering down. So they wanted to change 25 and 27. I said three and five, and we ended up playing at Wimbledon Rules, seven and nine. But this was uh, the balls were like balloons because the courts were wet. And Smith was down love 40 after losing the four-set 6-1, and he served three aces and two unreturnable serves to win that first game of the fifth set and just broke the spirit of Tyriac, and we ended up winning that match 6-love in the fifth. And the amazing thing was that, that I picked Gorman to play ahead of Solomon. And, of course, as the great coach that I was, I did not realize that Gorman had lost 17 straight times to Nastasi. 17. Gorman told me wow. that, which was nice of him. And... Uh, and then he made it 18 by losing the match that didn't matter after we'd won. So, yeah, I, I remember that Davis Cup match very clearly. And uh, it's probably, I guess, if you have to say there's a highlight to my career was being a part of that team to win. Con congratulations for uh, all of your efforts and, and again, for uh, getting the team to, to go and actually participate and, and win. What a... What an experience. And, you know, some of our other guests who have played Davis Cup matches, uh, you yourself said you double faulted, you know, 22, 25 times. Other guests have said that as well, uh, a road tie and just uh, the double fault or in the high double digits. So, um, yeah, great effort for the U.S. team in, in 72. And thank you, uh, thank you, Coach, for, for your efforts there. And um, talking a little bit more, uh, you know, you were elected to the International Tennis Hall of Fame in 1987. If you could uh, talk a little bit about what that wonderful recognition means to you. I sure can. I think, obviously, in any sport that you're involved in, to be in any Hall of Fame is, is, is an honor. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very, uh, I guess, uh, to be included with all those great players, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing experience. And, the Hall of Fame uh, in tennis, the International Tennis Hall of Fame, I guess is the highest honor you can get. So uh, to be recognized that I belong with, you know, some of those great players that I admired and, and like Jack Kramer and Tilden and all those greats that, that you know, I know about. Uh, I know all the top guys, Nadal, Federer, all those guys, Djokovic, they'll be there and, and the Williams sisters and, Eventually, but uh, you know, it was it was probably the highest honor I'd, I'd ever received, and and uh, I'm proud to be a part of that great you know core of tennis players. Uh, congratulations! And and just a couple of months ago, here in in Surprise, Arizona, uh, which is west of us, uh, Jim Courier's Power Share series is played, and Todd Martin was one of the players. And as you as you well know, Dennis Todd is now uh, the uh, the CEO of the Hall of Fame, as well as going to be the director of the, the 250 tournament in Newport. And uh, he was asked quite a bit here when he was in Arizona about uh, his new role with the International Tennis Hall of Fame. And one of the, one of the things he said uh, over and over again was, uh, you know, it's his goal, it's his mission to, to invite a lot of the inductees back year and year uh, again and again because there's, there's not enough current members that, that come to the event. And so Todd Martin's going to uh, – really make sure that uh, everyone is more than welcome and included in, in those ceremonies going forward. Well, I think it's a great choice. He's a, a, a smart young guy and uh, a great player. And, 
you know, I think it's important, in, you know, in our sport that, that former players get involved, and, you know, it's a great choice, and I think he's going to do a great job. And I hope he invites me back. <laughs> yeah, I agree completely. Well, I think we, uh, we 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 don't hear Alex on the air right now. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go uh, go to the next question. I think we've lost Alex's audio there for a second. Um, Coach, uh, what what was your uh, your toughest opponent that you ever, when you ever played, and, and why was that, please? My toughest opponent. Wow. Um, I guess I had different tough opponents, you know, as I grew up in the game. I mean. My original toughest opponent was Bill Bond from La Jolla. And then probably um, there's a guy from Arizona named Bill Lenore who was really good, real strong baseline player. He was tough. Um, I moved up to the the majors. Um, you know, Emerson was a tough guy for me to play. I had good results, you know, for him, against him, but but I always knew he was going to be the fittest guy I was going to play. Labor was tough. What a great player Labor was, obviously. And, and uh, I played Lou Hode once, and and this was way beyond when he was playing his best. But for a given match, Lou Hode was probably one of the most incredible athletes and, and players I've ever played. I played McEnroe and Fleming in doubles, and... You know, I certainly uh, respect McEnroe's talent, and uh, he was a great player. I don't particularly like the guy, but, uh, you know, he, he was a great player. Um, uh, let's see, who else um, of the top guys that I played? I, I never played against Sampras. Uh, I certainly, you know, recognize what a great server and player he was and and uh you know i didn't play career or any of those guys but uh probably the toughest guy i mean poncho segura who maybe most people don't know is probably the best player that nobody knows how good he was poncho segura was was so close to being the number one guy in the world uh, the only problem was he played big poncho and and Big Poncho had a little bit bigger serve, maybe a lot bigger serve, but Poncho Segura was incredibly good. And uh, I didn't like playing him. I only had to play him a couple of times because he was way older than I was. So, you know, every every kind of era that I played, uh, you know, I'd always find somebody that gave me a lot of problems. That is great. <clears throat> I'm actually back. My audio was off for a little bit, but I didn't go anywhere. Uh, Dennis, I saw that you wrote a book called Dennis Rothman's Tennis Workbook. Can you tell us how that came about? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I wrote a, two books, actually, a long time ago. But uh, the workbook was kind of like uh, when I played, I used to make notes on everything that I did. And, and, and so it, it, I kind of came up with an idea to, to give uh, serious players a, a kind of like a, a blueprint of, of what to do. And what I've learned from teaching a lot is that, you know, a lot of people have good intentions and, and they're going to try it. It's just kind of like a diet. You get on it for a week and then, boom, it's gone. You forget it. And the same thing with tennis. And, and it was basically, you know, a, a series of programs and, 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 and drills and stuff to do to get better. And, it's like anything. It's hard to follow and, and stick with it. So, But it was fun. I, I enjoyed it. And basically, I haven't changed a lot of my thoughts on, on the game. Obviously, the game is a little bit different now with all the top spin and everybody staying so far back and stuff. But for most players, including the club players, uh, you know, it's a lot easier to play the more kind of conventional game that we played rather than sitting 10 feet behind the baseline and, and drilling ground strokes. And uh, so I think it's relevant, but uh, I wrote it 20 years ago. So that's, I sold 4,000 copies and that's all they made. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, 
Dennis, can you share with us uh, what you're doing now? Yes, I'm living in Austin, Texas. Um, I'm working at a club, uh, Gray Rock. I teach. Uh, I'm uh, I'm coaching a wheelchair player from Chile. She's 12 in the world. Her name's Francesca Maradonis. Um, I'm working with 3-0 teams, 3-5 teams. I'm working with um, some players that play the national 60s and 55s, and and I'm playing a little bit. I had an amputation in 2010 uh, from an infection in the foot operation, and so I'm learning to uh, get around, uh, you know, a little bit slower, but uh, I'm still playing, and uh, I'm still enjoying the game. I follow it, and uh, particularly follow FC winning again, which is great, um, the NCAA. But, um, yes. Yeah. That's pretty much what I'm doing, and uh, I kind of went through a period where I was messed up with prescription drugs. Ironically, I was watching today on ESPN about all the NFL guys getting messed up with that stuff, and and I got messed up with it and, and got addicted to uh, some serious pain meds, and, and, you know, that basically ruined my life for about 10 years, and, and I went to Betty Ford and got off the stuff, and so, you know, I'm just thankful I'm able to get around and do things again. And, uh, uh, you know, it's all part of the, the journey we take. It is, it is. And thank you so much for sharing that. It's so important for people to know that that stuff can happen if you're not careful. And I read part of that story on an interview you gave, and and uh, it was inspiring to see that you, you, got, you went through it for 10 years, but you got through it with the support of your family and your wife and, and and now you're here sharing this great information with us, all the great stories. So uh, thank God that you were able to get through that. Yeah, I'm I'm blessed that uh, I'm still here because I was on, and they were talking about 15 milligrams of of stuff. I was on 80 milligram pills, and the last prescription I had was 12 a day of OxyContin, which oh my basically is scary stuff. And so anybody that might be listening, if you're messing up with that stuff, I mean, if I had somebody tell me what it can do to you, uh, I had two doctors tell me I'm going to be on that stuff the rest of my life. And because I had knee pain, I had 16 operations when I after playing. And so I, you know, I didn't pay attention. I listened to them. I thought they were right, but I didn't, I didn't really explore it. So, you know, I just tell people now, look, the, the longest you take that stuff is a week, and, and you know, I graduated from 5 milligrams to 10, ending up with 80 milligrams, 12 a day. I took 6 at the max, but I was taking Adderall, I was taking OxyContin, I was taking, and basically my life was gone, and I didn't know it. And I, my family saved me, and, and the Betty Ford, uh, you know, I went to Betty Ford and got off of it, and boy, I'm thankful, and any chance I get, I speak about it because it's a evil thing, and you know it's 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 kind of like deceptive. You think you're feeling better, and all of a sudden you're hooked on this stuff. So I empathize right. with those football players I watch today. Yes, and, and thank you so much for sharing that. It's so important. And uh, we're coming up to the end of the show, Dennis. We really appreciate your time. We have one last question for you. Uh, what advice do you have for parents of up and coming juniors? on their decision to either go to college or to consider a professional career? Well, that's a great question because I'm very strong in my, my feelings about that. I think the college format, hopefully they won't change the scoring system like they're talking about doing, but I think the college format is a great proving grounds. You can be the number one or number two or one of the top five college players. Then you've got a shot at making it on the pro tour. No one's done a study on the guys that turn pro way too soon and what happens to them afterwards. They, they, they take the guys that make it. So if you're, if you're winning tournaments as a junior, men's tournaments, yeah, maybe you go pro. But you've got to really have the credentials. And, and, and there are a lot of people trying to take those few spots. So go to college. Get an education so you can do something else if you don't make it. You get hurt, you're dead if you don't have that. 
So my advice to, to parents is don't think about the money right away. Think about what happens if they don't make it. And hopefully they'll, you know, pay attention and, and, and go to college. Absolutely. Thank you for great advice. I hope parents are listening to taking some notes. As a coach, you run a lot across the parents that, uh, that are seeing the big picture at the very end, but they don't take the time to do it, to take a look at everything they need to consider. Uh, Dennis, before we go uh, off the air here, anything else you want to add for our listeners? No, I, I just, I'm glad you're doing the show and you're getting guys like Dick Gould and, and Sean Embry and, and, you know, that's great for tennis and anything I can do to help the great game grow, I, I want to do it. So appreciate you guys uh, doing the work. And we appreciate you. You know, uh, we need uh, people like you coming on board and, and letting us know how we got to this point, all the sacrifices you guys have made and, and brought the game to this level. So we definitely appreciate your time and wish you the best. Uh, please say, say hi to everybody out there, and hopefully we'll have you on the show again soon. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Yeah, Thank you, Dennis. Night. Thank you, Dennis. Bye. Yes, that was Dennis Rolston on the show. I want to remind everybody that uh, tomorrow night, I'm sorry, tomorrow afternoon, we have Rick Macy on the show at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern time. Next week, we kick it off with Bobby Blair, author of Heidi Inside the Baseline. And in the same show, we're talking with uh, Jan Ozu from FifthSet.com. In the second part of our doubleheader, you will hear passing shots with Pete Zebron, and his guest host will be Jan Ozu. Uh, the CEO and Executive Director of the USPTA, John Embry, will join us Wednesday afternoon, and we're going to finalize the week with Dr. Ann Smith on Thursday night. This has been another edition of the Players' Lounge on the Pro 10 Radio Network. For Dennis Ralston and Pete Zebron, I am Alex Ramirez signing off. Have a good night, and God bless. Rock hard, folks!